Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Ari Wallach from the Futures Consultancy, Synthesis. The key to all long-term thinking is that it's not just about you. It's not just about your own life cycle unit from your birth to your death, but it, it transcends that. And it places you in a, in a longer wave and in a chain. Ari is going to try to talk us all down from the ledge and show us how to take the long path to political and social resilience. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. So I know this has been a rough time for a lot of you, and I hope you're doing well. You know, so in brief, yes, there's been a major electoral upheaval, and it seems there's many confused people out there working under some pretty strange assumptions. But no, this isn't as much of a shift as it may seem. You know, if anything, what's just happened is the legacy of the 20th century coming back to haunt us. You know, in an effort to counter the propaganda of our political enemies, American social scientists, Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead to be exact, proposed a world of screens that historian Fred Turner now is called The Surround. Now, this was really back in the 1950s and 40s, you know, right after World War II when we were looking at a new communist threat and people who believed that communism might be better than American capitalism for, you know, forging a path forward. 
So Mead and Bateson's idea was that if people had the experience of choosing different things or of looking at whichever screen they wanted to, they wouldn't care so much that all the choices were for essentially the same thing. You know, in short, looking at a screen, any screen, was more important than what a person learned or came to believe other than that he or she was experiencing real autonomy and choice. You get it? It's as if you if you could walk around with a remote control. Just the fact that you could change the channel created this illusion of choice, even though all the channels might show the same basic show from a different perspective. The supermarket embodies that sense of America as this land of choices. We get... 50 different laundry detergents to choose from as we walk down the aisle. You know, even though they're all almost exactly the same formulation and they're distributed by the same two or three corporations, you get to choose whichever one you want, as long as you choose and pay for one of them. The array of TV channels gave us a similar experience of choice. But Bateson and Mead probably never imagined a world with quite as many screens as ours has now, with our cell phones and laptops and multiple screens within screens within screens, and uh, just one Facebook page is the equivalent of 30 little screens. And they probably didn't imagine a, a world with as much of a sense of direct connection between our experience of screen choice and that of democracy. It was probably American Idol and other reality shows where users got to vote for the star they wanted that made this connection between screens and democracy uh, explicit. You know, and thus Donald Trump's migration from reality TV to electoral politics really came off as seamless. Social media and smartphones took screens to the next level of illusory user control, while they simply reduced the array of possibilities to a narrow beam of sensationalist, algorithmically assembled self-affirmation. But the underlying techniques for influencing people through all those screens, that's magic. Or at least the approach to magic practiced by Hitler and his propagandist in World War II before it was utilized by the British and American advertising agencies after the war. That's the subject of my graphic novel that I released just a couple of weeks ago, Alistair and Adolf, which is a, a fictional account of the historically real occult war between Crowley and Hitler at the end of World War II. And I actually wrote the script, you know, three years ago, and I hadn't meant it to be quite as prescient. But it turns out the story is a great way of understanding how we got where we are. The social media landscape in which so many of us spend so much time is really the ideal space for sigils and mimetic engineering because we're utterly untethered there from grounded experience. You know, those who succeed at these kinds of techniques are the ones who successfully tap into the existing hidden agendas in our popular culture. They, they don't necessarily have ideas of, them, of their own. They just jump into the unacknowledged standing wave of society, and then it carries them along for the ride. You know, it's not the subject or surfer that matters so much as the wave itself and one's willingness to surrender to it entirely. 
That's why celebrities say like Charlie Sheen a couple of years ago or candidates like Donald Trump who adopt this strategy end up seeming to have no coherent goal. They're just jumping into the wave and letting it carry them along. On the bright side, I think that running a government as large as ours is really hard. Trump's obsession with his Twitter feed will keep him more than occupied over the next months of his presidency. The bigger issue is whether his hiring of people who've never worked in their assigned fields before, like Ben Carson at Housing and Urban Development, whether that will lead to large parts of the government simply not working. I don't think it's a good moment to be counting on FEMA or the FTC or the Department of the Interior. But a paralyzed, incompetent federal administration will simply require people to develop more local mechanisms for economic recovery, for social cohesion, or even for mutual aid. This means red and blue people working together to maintain the basics of civil society, from food supply chains to health care to education to peaceful streets. With neoliberalism and the supranational corporations at bay for a moment, we may actually have more of an opportunity to develop the bottom-up alternatives than we've had for a long time. The Depression spawned local currencies, farm cooperatives, and new mechanisms for distributed prosperity. Those of us with a foot in the real world stand a chance of building similar tools and networks today. Meanwhile... And we have to look for solidarity wherever we can find it. Sometimes it involves working with people or even helping people we don't like. Imagine that. You know, my Team Human show is an effort in that direction. But I'm going to be working hard to engage with more guests who don't already agree with me and all of you on what it means to be human or how best to express it. To that end, you know, I'm happy our guest today is a, a friend of mine, but a friend of mine who thinks differently about certain things, uh, Ari Wallach, who uh, came up with the concept of the long path, which is a uh, really another way of saying using a North Star or a, a deliberately super long-term strategy uh, as you move forward in your life or your business or your government. And he's also, I think, encouraging us not to let this moment frees us into fear, but rather to move ahead willfully and with as much agency as possible, which to my mind is, uh, well, it's the key to being a good member of Team Human. I'm Master Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Keo Stark, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Steve Lambert, and I am on Team Human. Hi, I'm Michael White, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Mushan Zeraviv, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest today, Ari Wallach. as a, uh, a, a long-range, long-path thinker, and, and in the best sense of the word, futurist, mm. uh, we seem to be in a moment where uh, everybody 
is like frozen, unable to plan for anything. Whether it's even students at Queens are registering at like half the speed that they did last semester. Businesses are are frozen in terms of do we invest, do we stop, do we make the new plan? Everybody is like in this weird wait and see frozen thing where where almost all of our long-term planning, whether it's, you know, from the from the left and the progressives and the environmentalists thinking about how we're going to save the world and all that, everybody's like, well, just, just wait, just wait. We've got to deal with the immediate crisis. Isn't that the opposite of the healthy approach in a moment of crisis to just pull your oars out of the water and let the, <laughs> and let the rapids take you? Wait, and the metaphor is actually really good because that's exactly what you're supposed to do in a moment of crisis. When, like when I learned how to river raft, it's the exact opposite. In that moment of crisis, you actually put more oars and you actually power stronger. Right. Um, and, but here's the thing, like it, what, what people I think sometimes fail to fully grok is that all these major decisions are still being made by this biological entity called the human animal. And so in moments of kind of seeming uh, panic, we, the limbic takes over, and in theory, we become ultra short, right? In theory. The, the reality, though, is that those who are willing to kind of push past that, past the emotional side of it, actually do the best in the long run. So, yeah, everyone's freaking out, but it's totally unnecessary, like totally unnecessary. And in fact, you should be putting more oars in the water. Right. And have more intentionality. 100%. There, you know, what's, what's happening is people are getting, um, they're in this frozen stance that somehow they've cut themselves off from the future, but like it's still there. Like it's, it's still present. It's still like right now. Um, and so some people, though, actually see the long game and actually you give more power over to them when you freeze like that. It's actually a really good psychological tactic is to force people to freeze up because then you can keep playing long and they don't even see any of the stuff happening around them. They like lose all situational awareness. Right. So right now, in theory, the progressives are, are frozen up and the, the whatever you want to call them, the Trumpians are thinking long term about what, yeah. what kind of country they want to build. Bannon says he has a 50 year plan. Right. When was the last time you heard a progressive say we have a 50 year plan, a 50 year strategy? Never. Never. Which is the Chinese? I hear say that they have a five hundred year plan. Look, Masayoshi's son, you know, who owns SoftBank and Sprint, and you saw him at Trump Tower. I I was on his uh, website yesterday, and he has a on their website a three hundred year plan. That's what he says. We have a three hundred year plan, and I was like, for a company, for a company. Oh, that's like horseshit. And then right below it was a link to their thirty year plan PowerPoint. Was that? I, I was like, I, at first I thought this was far. And then as I looked into the PowerPoint, this is good stuff. Because the point when you have a 30-year plan is not to say, here's exactly what we're going to do. But he does, he does backcasting. So he says, here's where we think we want to be in 30 years. Here are the kind of guardrails of how we're going to get there. I mean, it, that level. But look, this makes sense, right? Like when I was in Japan, I visited a, a temple outside of Kyoto where every, you know, several decades, they basically take it apart and rebuild it again. I mean, they have this ultra long-term transgenerational stance. So it makes, even though Masayoshi's son is, you know, Korean, but he's, he came up, he was, you know, raised uh, in Japan, that has basically colored in a great way his thinking. Why do they take it apart and put it together <clears throat> again? It's not so much that the physical structure, this is a, it's a great question, it's not so much that the physical structure needs to be taken apart, but it can actually last longer 
than what they're doing. It's a transgenerational ritual that connects the present generation to the future and the past. And that's the key to, I mean, look, that's the key to long path. That's the key to all long-term thinking is that it's not just about you. It's not just about your own life cycle unit from birth to, from your birth to your death, but it, it transcends that. It's for future generations, but it also gives much respect to the generations that came before you. And it put, places you in a, in a longer wave and in a chain. And so, you know, on, on the progressive side, they'll look back at like Martha Luther King or Susan B. Anthony, but see those as distinct moments in time, like chapters in a book, as opposed to a long-running story or a long-running narrative that they're a part of. And when you start to see these things as distinct units, you cut yourself off from the future part of that story. Yeah, but on the other side, it can get really totalizing. So, you know, I'll talk to people, you know, about revolution, and it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the, this particular labor action against this one company this is part of the universal total revolution you know that yeah. it's that again it's this long battle for human emancipation against the tyranny of you know top down domination yeah is it i yeah. mean is that a, a healthier way to think about it i think revolution is an unhealthy way to think about any of this right like when was the last time you saw major revolution in biological systems that then therefore ended up being sustainable, right? So really, it's a question of, the, the, the tension is between revolution and evolution. But you can, in, in biological systems, evolution has very obvious metrics. It's a perpetuation of life, right? So the evolution of the human species at, a, at, a phys, at the physical plant level, like there's only so much we have to do. Maybe we'll have to get like tougher skin because there's more UV but at, a, at an emotional, psychological level, how do you evolve that, the wetware? And if you just think about it in terms of a revolution, what ends up happening is there'll be, let's say, this massive revolution, and then you still have the same wetware systems in place. And as we've seen, the French Revolution, whoever leads the revolution are the first ones up against the wall, and the system repeats itself and repeats itself. So unless you're able to step back and say, how do you evolve at the wetware level, you end up just repeating the same cycle over and over again. It reminds me of that, that scene like in The Matrix, where all of a sudden Neo is confronted with this kind of reality that like we've been here before. This has actually happened dozens of times. And that's when he has like this epiphany, like we have to do something different. We have to evolve out of this cycle that keeps happening. So these revolutionary, this, the way of thinking about things in this like paradigm of the revolution, to me, whenever I hear that, I always think like, and then what? It just repeats itself, but with like different actors on the, on the chessboard. Right, which is why people now, when they look at, and I understand they're trying to do pattern recognition, and even though I think Trump falls into a different, rather novel category, they can look and they say, well, look at the rhetoric here, and look at the, you know, the, the racism, and the, the underlying anti-Semitism, and chauvinism. We've been here before. This is the way it sounds before a Mussolini or a Hitler. And so then people are almost longing for saying, well, maybe this will only be as bad as Berlusconi, as yeah. if that's the, good, <laughs> that's the good option versus what we uh, secretly are, 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 are almost uh, preemptively uh, uh, imagining. Yeah, look, we're, we're pre-cogging uh, like normalization. We're already normalizing this, this Berlusconi or this Mussolini moment, right? And instead of actually thinking like, how do we actually flip the script? So I was thinking about a lot about lately, like the, the British system of like the shadow government, where you literally put in place a shadow cabinet member 
for every single person as as the opposition. We never think like that. So the we you know a progressive kind of forward thinking folks will just kind of try to battle Trump issue by issue the same way that's always been done using the exact same rules and in some and in therefore reinforcing the game right reinforcing the chessboard itself mm -hmm. as opposed to going to like a glass bead game or what I would say is a four-dimensional view of it, like taking this long-term view. And so if you put in a shadow cabinet, so for his department of labor, the guy, you know, coming from Wendy's, you put another department, you have your actual secretary of labor, whoever it could have, whoever would have been under. And where does he work? You actually set them up in Washington. You give them a full-time staff. So for every... For every law or policy that comes out, you show the alternative, not just the alternative, well, it's the opposite of what you said, but then you have to fit it into a larger picture, a larger evolved narrative of where you actually want it to go. Because we're really, what this is, it's a competition over different ideas of the future, right? And so what ends up happening is if you just play by your opponent's game, you're reifying and reinforcing their future narrative. Maybe you, you try to ping at it, but that's it what the progressives should be doing is setting up a completely alternative narrative and alternative So they make future. their own little place. They take money and hire people and have a big office. It's the, it's the shadow West Wing. Right, and they don't actually have... Power. Power. In the traditional sense, but they have... But they, they can have publish their version of a law or whatever. Their version of a law, but instead of it being the kind of traditional think tank infrastructure... Right, a so Brookings BS whatever. And there's well, or competing white papers. So yeah. you have all of them kind of publishing the same thing. You literally go toe for toe, right? The, the idea behind that is you're competing at a deeper narrative level that is about alternative visions of the future, which gives people meaning and purpose. But what does their output look like? It could literally just be press conferences and white papers and alternatives and getting that kind of alternative on the air, on the media, online. So instead of kind of these quips on Twitter, well, he did this while we, you know, and, and, and battling back and forth, it's literally a complete alternate universe. I mean, that's supposed to be Nancy Pelosi after the thing saying what the Democrats would have done here is done this and that and the other. And our vision is the people and it's what they would have done. So the question is, what should we do? So for every single thing that they put out, there should be this is what it is. This is the opposite of this. So you say there should be no minimum wage. We say there should be. It should be $15, $16. And, and, and then therefore, this is how it connects into everything else. And this is how it builds up the middle class and makes people happier and healthier. So for every law that's about to be cut or policy from the EPA, you show the exact flip side of that, but then you have to connect it into something else. Look, who does this really well is the intelligence community and the corporate sector. They have these red cell teams, right? right. So they actually play like the enemy, as opposed to kind of looking at their own terrain and saying, well, how do we tweak here and there? They literally say, that's why it's called red, because it came, you know, as the reds were the Soviets. What, what would they do? How would they play against this? But you consistently build that up. And in a way, you, because what, what's going to end up, remember, she won the popular vote. She won more votes than anyone in history. What eventually you do, it's not about reifying Clintons or even the progressives, but it's about who's delivering a better narrative for who we are and where we want to go. And on some level, though, there's some commonality between the two. You know, I mean, on some some aspects of whatever it is, you know, Trump sees as making America great again is the same as as the progressive's view, you know? Yeah. It's the question is, is it inclusive or exclusive? I mean, here's the problem. I think 
The progressives are very much attached to these kind of universal mother values, right? Like, how do we make it better for everyone, all the kids in the family? Um, and the conservative movement has been taken over by a number of interests that have locked down the thinking that it's for everyone, but it should really be, it's, 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 it's much more Darwinian, survival of the fittest, right? So the way they view the pyramid is that everyone, if, if you're not at the top of the pyramid, it's your own fault, basically. Right, but they're also thinking in terms of, I mean, it is Darwinian and, and survival, but it, it's what they do, they'll look at the projects and say, look, this is how the, the Democrats or the progressives have prevented African Americans from developing the entrepreneurial spirit they need to be fully participating Americans because they're giving them charity, they're coddling them, or they're, they're, they're making them more dependent on the teat of, of your mother government. Yes. And you know what we've got to do is stimulate, is spark them, is catalyze their own entrepreneurial Americanism so that they, they do, do what they need to. So yeah, you let, you let corporations go in, let corporations, even to some extent, um, um, exploit them and abuse them until they realize, oh, we've got to fight back with our own businesses and, and, and compete it more effectively. So if, if it's in New York and it's one of these awful grocery stores like Big Apple that's going to price gouge them and all, so where's your black-owned business that's going to come compete and, and uh, where's your platform co-op, whatever you're going to do. Yeah. And I understand what they're, what they're thinking is, is even if it's, even if there's bad actors like, uh, uh, like you're like Trump. Okay, I'm gonna hire you and then stiff you. What are you gonna do about that? And it's like as if okay, as if what they're asking for is come on, fight back. Come on, yeah, you know. Yeah. So you stiff me now, and we're then. <laughs> well, you know, this is this is the you know you see this the, you see this kind of mythos in a lot of movies where like the dad will kind of beat up on their son until the son fights back, so he learns how to be on the school. That yard. crazy uh, Whiplash movie exactly. with the dr drum so, teacher so that abuses the guy. It's, some, it's in yeah, all of these Star, Star Wars everywhere. Wars, it's it's always, all over yeah, the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so you you beat up on the kid until finally they 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 fight yes. back, you know, and have that Oedipal, you know, uh, yeah. rage against the father, which makes them, uh, you know, surpass him. Right, that's the myth, I guess. It's the myth. The problem is, it, it's, this is not like a, it's not a beautiful two-hour story where Luke comes off the planet and he was raised by a great... There, you know, so the, what you put out earlier is like an idealized notion of like, they, well, they, were, they would fight back with their own platform co-op. But like, <laughs> they, you know, for decades, they've been redlined from getting loans, right? So there's like, let's just go to this acute example, let's say in like, parts of Harlem, what ends up happening is there's historical legacy and trauma of slavery and structural racism. So it's not this like level playing field. But I agree with you, right? Like what all policy, it's not like all the policy that the Democrats have done is just like beautiful, shiny platinum. And what they've done on the right has been like horrific and rusted. Like there's actually both points of view and thinking actually should be working together. That is this kind of bicameral tension, this left and right brain, yeah. right? Like it should be that, but interests have come in and have taken over and colonized the ability for these two parties to work really well. As you know, it's interesting. I was reading this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal 
I, I think it was actually Karl Rove or someone within that camp who basically is saying like Democrats pull it together. Like we actually need a more robust opposition. It's like this crazy, you're starting to see these kind of like quote unquote mainstream Republicans like pining for kind of mainstream liberal thinking so they can actually get into a dialectic again. But we've completely and totally lost that. Right. Well, they killed it to begin with. They killed it. They they created an obstructionist government rather than a dialectical one. Which actually plays into the the overarching business model because, you know, there was a, several years ago, uh, a congressman was was asked, you know, the approval ratings for Congress right now are at 9%. How do you feel about that? And he said, amazing. It's, like, it's part of the strategy. And then, what do you mean it's part of the strategy? We actually want to push the federal. We, he, I would love it if we were at 1% and people totally distrusted Washington and pushed everything back to the hyperlocal, which gets interesting because when you speak to certain like progressives and, people, and certain people in those camps, they actually feel the same way too, right? Like, it'd be great if we decentralized out of Washington and it was hyperlocal. Right. So, if we project, if, if, if we were to get some really interesting folks from the quote unquote right and the left together and actually maybe throw a libertarian or two in there, you would actually see them agreeing on this kind of hyper local, circular, right. new economic thinking that isn't about quote unquote big government or big corp. It'd be little corp and little government. And there's this interesting kind of fourth dimension where the most radical thinkers in both parties or three parties or even four actually totally agree, but they're obstructed by orthodoxies of the past or orthodoxies from up high or from major donors or special interests. Right. But there's actually this interesting area of agreement. I was talking to a woman who is the kind of consigliere to a major unnamed quote unquote right wing billionaire, pushes a lot of money. And as she and I started talking, this is where the conversation led to. She's like, well, it'd be great if they were kind of like worker-owned cooperatives. Like her free market thinking was actually very in line. They with get to the of, same place. They get and to the that's same where, place. And that's where, I mean, on a certain level, the sort of Brexit nationalism bounded, not protectionist, but bounded economic vision of the, the, the Trumpish right can serve us. In other words, if neoliberalism and, and mega trans supranational corporatism were held at bay temporarily even, it, it creates a, a freedom for us to develop local bottom-up businesses again. Yeah, well, or, or you know, and I, and I say this as a consultant to Megacorp, I mean, I work with Megacorp, the, what I'm talking about now is like, well, this might be an actually really interesting window for you to still have a kind of transnational footprint but what's the hyper-local version of you look like, right? Like, and in fact, what if you were to actually turn that over to local cooperatives and you're able to supply part of it, but not all of it? So how do you, how could they actually evolve their yeah. business model? It's so hard though, you know, and I've spoken to some of these companies about that and, and they see it as, you know, local or national branding of their product. It's like, oh, okay, well, we understand what you're saying, you know, to Brazilians, Pepsi is something different than it is to Argentinians. It's like, not that, you know, it's like, so what do they want to make? They, they see that the only purpose of the local country is, you know, okay, how do we just get their water clean enough so they could bottle our syrup? Yeah, well, so what that's interesting, because when you think about like the Coke model, right? So the way Coke works is like, they supply the syrup, but then it's bottlers around the world that actually supply the bottle and the water, and they, they actually do everything, and they, right. they, they do the final, the last mile. So... 
you can think about that for a number of products in many ways where people could be supplying the raw material, but it's built up at a local level. When I think of like, if I was, you know, more of an investor type, I would look at companies like Autodesk and ones who are actually building that infrastructure. So there's an interesting thing, like on Autodesk, they have different parts now on their site where you can upload to the cloud different plans for different products and people can share them. Right. And it's like, literally it feels like the internet circa like 1989, like, like the well in, in where we are. And so certain companies will eventually start to go there, right? So if you think about like Volkswagen, German engineering, what happens when they actually get into 3D printing and instead of going to the Volkswagen dealership to buy the car, Volkswagen has, they've set up their kind of version of 3D printing in local municipalities where any product that you need is able to be constructed, but the brand of Volkswagen is what's providing that precision, but the local ability to kind of sell it and distribute it are these localized economies. So that's what I mean by them being able to kind of think about devolving themselves and devolving ownership. You know, when I talk to anyone below the CEO at a Fortune 500 company, they either don't necessarily get it or want to hear it or it doesn't make sense to them. When you actually talk to the CEO, especially of a Fortune 100 company, maybe after a drink and if like they're older and they're thinking about like legacy, they totally get this. Like they see that it could eventually and potentially should go there. But anyone underneath that is not necessarily usually open to that. But even those CEOs right now, they're bracing for impact. They don't know what's happening. The, the ones that are bracing for impact are the ones who probably never had an ultra bold vision of where they wanted to go. They were operating either on quarterly or maybe every two or three years, but they were the one like, you know, so if you look at like Mark Benioff from Salesforce, like they know where they want to go. And this is, he's not bracing for impact. They are going full speed. And they're also recognizing, and this goes like to your earliest comment, like we are reifying, again, the federal government and what Trump can do in a way that in some ways presupposes and gives over more power than we should, right? Mm -hmm. So the CEOs that aren't bracing for impact are like, okay, there's rules and he may tweet at me this or that. But in some ways, like we're more powerful. We have a longer term vision. Like he'll be gone in four or eight years. But the ones who are kind of bracing for impact are, I, I think in some ways, giving more power over to him than they should. Right, or to the moment, moment to moment vacillations of the macro economy and all that. Yeah, it's like, it's like you're either a day trader or you're going long on something. Right. And, the, and the day trade, nano trade, nanosecond thinkers are the ones who are totally freaking out. Yeah. Like, so well, yeah. their companies were also, their companies have been abstracted. Their companies are so financialized that they're no longer even really companies. They, you know, they're holding companies and they have deriv more derivatives on their on their uh, properties than they have properties. Yeah, or exactly. And there's, so there's the, the there there isn't there. So the, the way the animal spirits that control the day-to-day -day happenings of the market can rise and fall and kill these folks. Trump's a great metaphor, right? A lot, if not most of his income is derived from licensing his name that he consistently builds up. Like he doesn't own a lot of these hotels and right. these properties. He licenses the name to them and takes a cut from it. So he, in some ways, is kind of the epitome of this non-there-there corporate entity, right? The, the, the Trump name as a brand, you see on the sides of all these, on the sides of plane, like he doesn't own it. No, it's a name on debt is what it really is. Yes. And then who owns that? Which, which, by the way, makes it very scary because the, the real, and no one's 
people are digging deep, they need to dig deeper. Who owns that debt? Just the Russians own that debt. And the Chinese government and other, yeah. and, other and Brazilian, like everyone, you know, like, I feel bad, but most people do not realize that the incoming president is so leveraged and owned by other folks from other, I mean, sovereign wealth funds have invested right. in his properties and in his brand. Right, right. And on the other hand, there was something, the, the one positive thing, not that I would ever run for president, but <laughs> the fact that he ran and won kind of says, you know, it's all, f anyone can run now. So if you did LSD in college, doesn't matter. So, you know, it's like anybody's allowed to run again. Yeah, and in some ways, that's uh, wiping the slate clean for democracy. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, look, we, so I was, I was talking to someone, he goes, I was like, how can people vote for Trump? Like, I don't, who, do these people even know who he is? And he goes, ah, you didn't watch 14 year, seasons of Apprentice. These folks know exactly who he is, and they love it, right? So there's like, so people have a really good idea who he is, that kind of, that celebrity, he's been in their living room, you want to have a beer with him, he's a tough guy, quote unquote, and in the end, though, the experience that you need, the years you're supposed to put in the Senate and in government, has all been wiped away. So yeah, anyone could run, like Kanye could run. Yeah. Anyone could run. That being said, though, all this means is anyone can win. It doesn't mean they can actually govern, right? Like, right. a year from now, is he impeached? Is he, you know, being basically run by McConnell? Like, that, we'll see. So anyone can win now, but... Look, you, everyone's talking today about this, this research that came out in the past 24 hours that shows for the first time a 30-year-old is less likely to make more than their parents. It's basically the American dream. That and life expectancy just Dropped by two years. Yeah. Two years life expectancy. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's in the, the what And when you, when you pull out that life expectancy, though, part of it is opioid addiction, right? And just like and obesity and all these other... You know, it's interesting. I was looking... I was looking through the data of the life expectancy going down, and it's the rise of heart disease and coronary. These are highly preventative, right? Yeah. But the leading cause of these is sedentary lifestyle, right, and people's diets. So if Trump sees that and he really wants to make America great again, he has to end the subsidies to those very entities that are those diets, which is high, high red corn meat syrup. and corn yeah. syrup and sugar. So the leading causes of that decline in life expectancy are some of the largest receivers of federal subsidies. Government subsidies, and that is basically corn syrup and oil. Yeah. Kill the planet, kill the body. Yeah. The amount of money, sub exploration subsidies that Exxon and others got was over, I think, $500 million last year. Even though they had record multi-billion, they were still able to get subsidies for doing this. Look, what these folks, a lot of these folks are ultra short-term focused, right? But by the way, that is how we are. So if, if you and I were to go into the grocery store right now and you were hungry and there was Ben and Jerry's and like bananas and fruit, at, at, the, at, at the bottom of your cortex, you would go for the high fat content, which feeds you right now and takes care of you, even if there was long-term damage from it. That's how the system is set up right now. Because at the end of the day, we're still only human. And that's in some ways what laws and government and a lot of these other kind of external forces and regulations have always been about is to bring out our better self or at least help us not make these short-term decisions, right? And it's interesting so because the, the issue is, like this podcast, it's like, what does it mean to be human, right? It, it goes both ways, right? To, right? to be like, there's an idea like, what does it mean to be on a ton team human? But sometimes team human is acting in the very immediate short term. And so the question is, how do we in the right ways, 
push and evolve ourselves from being too human. Because sometimes we have this idealized idea of what the human is, and it's this third fold on the brain, right? This kind of like we're thinking right? Wittgenstein and Heidegger, that's human, right? Uh-huh. And look, there's also part of what the human is, is about four inches back and to the right, which is the first kind of bulb on the brain at the end of the spinal cord that's probably 30 or 40 million years old. That reptilian is also human. So the question is, how do you balance the tension of those? I've always kind of seen government and policies as a way of figuring out how to resolve that dynamic between that little nub at the end of the spine, that reptilian, with this third fold. Right. And then right now, we're moving into a government of the nub. Yes. You know? <laughs> this, is a, this is a government of the nub, right? And, but, and, there's, and there's a lot of belief, you know, that reptilian belief that let's get some more nub in here because, you know, we've been... And I understand what it feels like to... I mean, because the problem is on, on some level it feels like people have been listening to mommy and not getting the results they want anyway, so let's cut loose. Let's have that, that, at, that moment of adolescence. But to, yeah, but to your point, you need a little bit of mommy and you need a little bit of daddy. Right. You need both. And so, and the, the issue is, like, there's this kind of constant pendulum swing. And it's getting, and the swing is going further. Now we're like, it's all daddy. Yeah. Like in this like late coffee inversion, right? It's it's all daddy nub. <laughs> and, but, but by the way, this is, we call it nub, but other people who are like in the whiplash model who are like, no, this is actually. Strength. This is core. This, this is, is, yeah. This is, not, this is actually the fourth fold. This is what we are. You know, this goes back to the earlier thing about like, do we evolve the wetware in humanity? So if we think about, kind of what the amalgam looks like. This kind of like, and by the way, Chinese and others have, they got this down thousands of years ago. This like yin and yang, this balance, uh-huh. the Tao, the middle way. We just haven't figured it out yet. Um, but so, and so. Right, because we're still in winner takes all dialectic. Zero sum uh, dialectic. Yeah. This or this, but that, that. And this, and uh, a synthesis moment, and even that isn't necessarily a stable system. Because yeah. a synthesis, and eventually we'll need something to kind of re, to rebalance it. It is, very difficult to get us there because we are so attached to previous business models of governance and how humans work. And there's, you know, there's this book by Nicholas Bergruen and Gardell's called Intelligent Governance of the 21st Century. And they said, we need a balance of a parliamentary system. And instead of just a president, we need four presidents. Yeah. And they rotate on multi-year terms and they're in for 10 years. But there's a parliament that can pull them out. You know, like, so I'm not saying that's the system we necessarily need, but to think about new ways of doing this, because obviously in this, this system isn't, well, it's isn't a little, going to work. The one we've got now is a little brittle for the needs of the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, it, it's showing some resilience, but I don't know if it takes... You know, there's this book by um, Marshall Goldsmith, the, the coach, it called it, like, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh-huh. It's a like best-selling book in the era. So, like, I often think about, like, our current democracy in that way. Like, what got us here won't get us there. The question, though, is to what is there? And... Neither party, neither group has clearly articulated what getting there is. But once someone has come forth with a stronger, and I don't mean utopian or dystopian, but a kind of a, a, a pro-human society, what that looks like, then we should be able to reverse engineer what the governance systems are to get us there. What I worry is that we're, A, we're not going to, that vision is lacking, and B, in the meantime, and it's a whole other conversation, is what role will artificial intelligence play in governance systems in the next 10 to 15 years? Because we are already seeing kind of creeping AI into what we think were normally kind of human decision making. And in a sense, it's fine. But 
eventually we'll get to a point where like, why do you need a city council when like IBM's Watson can handle most of those decisions? Right. And, and where most people don't realize that we're embedding values into those uh, artificial intelligences at the beginning that we become unaware of a little bit later. So I was saying, I was, I was speaking to a group of progressives and I was saying like, look, in the, in the really in the 50, 50s, 60s and 70s, the right basically took over the economics departments. And like, so economics, the Chicago school was kind of owned by the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. And, then what, and then what you saw in the kind of the 70s and the 80s, like the, the, the progressives took over like the English departments, right? And like they came up with these kind of like right based frames and these new departments that were super important, like gender studies and women's studies. Um, and they kind of took over sociology, right? Great. Yeah. So the right had economics and, you know, we, the progressives had sociologists and like gender studies yeah. and maybe a little bit of urban studies uh, and the poli sci department. Now, what's happened is, and I was saying this to the progressive groups and they all look like me, I was crazy. I said, if you are. The progressive movement, and specifically major progressive funders, if they want to own the future, they should be pushing as much money to creating fellowships and full-ride scholarships for people of color or for women or people with progressive views into computer science departments. Because right, right. now... And engineering schools. Engi- so but even but like the code, the black box algorithmic code, because what's happening is systems are being coded... Mm. And AI systems are being thought about at Carnegie Mellon and at Berkeley and at all the and MIT and all these schools. This is code that is underlined that will be used for decades to come that people won't even know where it came from. Like you see these, look, there's this company now that does predictive analytics around sentencing, right? Yeah. What, what's the likelihood that someone is going to re- recidivism, right? Coming out of jail. Yeah. The, so I was talking to a friend of mine, I go like, who coded that? Right. And he's like, I have no idea. Like, do, do they live in the neighborhood where these folks are coming from? Or were they like a Stanford kid on the Stanford right. swim team who's also doing symbolic system and coded this through their own kind of viewpoints? Yeah. And because, I mean, and it comes full circle, um, maybe which is a good place to, to end this. But the the. The code is never as neutral as it appears. People think that's because it's a computer that it's somehow neutral but the the values of the programmer end up embedded in there just as you know the values of of Evan Williams and Jack Dorsey were embedded in Twitter which is part of what led uh, to a Trump and to led yeah. to the 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 expression of these uh, sort of uh, hidden mimetic agendas of our culture it's the same thing for our great religious texts they were all coded the Torah the New Testament the Bhagavad Gita all of these have deep symbolic meaning codes in them. This is assuming you don't believe God wrote all of these. (laughs) But human, those were all code, right? All religions are technologies meant to steer in a certain direction. They all have these uh, value sets in them. And so sometimes hermeneutics, we can kind of go back and what were they thinking, blah, blah, blah. But at least we can kind of somewhat wrap our heads around that. This code is so deep and is so value laden, but it's seen because it's in this box of zeros and ones that it's somehow just functional. It's functional, <laughs> and it's above and it's beyond. Um, and this this will be kind of like the ethics of code and empathic coding, <laughs> empathetic coding, right? And how do you actually put that into new systems? Will be the kind of main areas that we have to think about. And in some ways, the battlefield of conservatives and progressives and maybe new groups in the decades to come.
Right. It feels like what we what we embed into our code now is really a, a bigger uh, predictor and influencer of what's going to happen in the future than almost anything else. 100%. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining Team Human and for contributing to the life of this show, both by listening and offering your support at teamhuman.fm, where we've just set up recurring payments for anyone so inclined. I want to thank the newest sponsors of the show, Raymond Jepson, Dode, who gave us a magical $23, and Stephen Guggen, and Alexander Steinhardt of Offtime. We're also being broadcast on a growing network of public and community radio stations. If you've got a favorite, please let them know about the show and the fact that they can have this fine, non-commercial content absolutely free. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Special thanks to Zago, Meetup, and Aaron Dignan for helping get us started this year. And thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for the music you heard on the show. We'll be back again in the new year with new interviews, interventions, and resources. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushcock. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.